Well, hello, everybody. It's another uh, Lords of Computing podcast. We're here at uh, Spring One Platform, as I like to say, the most awesome name conference ever. Yes. And, and as, as always, I've got Matt here with me. How's it going? So you, you gave a talk today. I did. And it was sort of like, uh, was it like Fifty Shades of, of Concur, if I remember? Or no, it was only three, not Concur, of, of uh, Concourse. It was, like uh, yeah, it was uh, automating the crap out of your infrastructure with Concourse, which was fun. <laughs> um, but more importantly, like, I get to see your face during this co- podcast, which is not really a normal thing that we do. You can, you can see all the, uh, the absurd gesticulation yeah. that I do. <laughs> like, I can see your facial expressions as you react to the obscure things that I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so give, give us, like, an overview of what, what... You did it with someone else as well, but, like, what, what was the premise of the talk? Like, uh, what, what so we talked thing? about, you know, having to manage many, many Cloud Foundry Foundations. We managed 10... Many people are managing, you know, that number or a similar number based on having maybe multiple data centers, many different uh, security partitions. And to manage all of that with a small team, you need to drive like tons and tons of automation. Yeah. So what, what do you need 10 for, first of all? I mean, three sounds good, but like, <laughs> why, why 10? It ends up being 10 because you have pre-production environments and then you have production ah, environments okay. and then you have multiple data centers. And then we have actually have environments that are segmented by security policy as well. So we have different Cloud Foundry environments okay. for different uh, classifications of data access. And then you must have your own private cloud, just like an executive washroom. Like we here, do. Here's my own cloud. I don't like to call VMware a private cloud, but yeah, like totally. <laughs> the VIP cloud. Yeah. Yeah. Like I didn't sink four years into OpenStack to make it work, so I don't feel like I earned the like private cloud label. <laughs> I see. I see. Then that that makes sense why you would like because if I remember from looking over the uh, the slides ahead of it, like um, you sort of had like three approaches to like setting up, like managing, automating all of that. Yeah. So part of the talk, which hopefully people get to catch on on YouTube if they missed it, was really about how we started tackling the problem by building one giant pipeline for every environment, everything we had to deploy. And there's a picture of it in there, and it's monstrous and scary. <laughs> um, and then how we went from there and iterated and slowly made it better and more um, more focused on single responsibilities for the pipelines. So uh, what right. we ended up doing is breaking the pipelines down. We run like 15 products as a part of the overall platform. So Cloud Foundry is like a huge piece, but we also have other pieces that we offer out to the developers that make up kind of the platform product offering. And so each of those then ends up having its own pipeline, which makes things easier to reason about. Right. Also enables like when you have multiple pairs on the team, they can work on different pieces of the of the overall platform without right. stepping on each other's feet. It's it's sort of like some principles of microservices applied to your pipeline. To yeah. break, break it up into smaller, as you say, more single purpose. Like, yeah, exactly. Parts. That's exactly what it was. And then we also touched a bit on culture, of course, because uh, we talk a lot about what we're doing with Composed Labs and culture and the transformation at Allstate. And the message was really, you know, that can be bigger than Allstate. The cultural principles can be applied anywhere, which is uh, collaboration and empowerment. And the dev team really, like, was empowered. The platform engineering team, I should say, was really empowered to make their work more interesting because it turns out that 
automating mundane things is interesting work. Certainly much more interesting than doing the mundane things. <laughs> That's why it's, it's one step removed from mundanity or mundanity, Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. It's huh. like... So, so what, what would rate as a mundane thing? What we would rate is like upgrading a tile ah, in Ops Manager. Okay, okay, okay. It's like pretty mundane. And we did, I, you know, I described a little bit of the yak shaving of like, right. you go to upgrade, I, I believe the example I gave in the talk was the mobile push tile. You go to upgrade the mobile push tile, it's dependent on Redis being a certain version, so now you have to upgrade Redis. Yeah, oh, but yeah. Redis needs like a new stem cell, so then you have to go upgrade the stem cell. And then you go through like all of this hoop jumping, or what I call the operational whack-a-mole. Yeah, so yeah. you go through like all of this, and then you finally get done, and you've spent all this time, and now you have to do it for two more environments. Yeah. Now this is you know the first thing, I try to always go with the first thing that pops in my head. But the first thing that pops in my head is like when you try to like clean a part of your house, like be it a closet or a whole garage, and like unless you like I don't know if I've ever done this, but I have this fantasy of like I'll go to the garage and just like throw all of it away. Like yes. no, no filtering because otherwise you're like, you find this box and you're like, oh, well, I want to keep this. Well, where does this go? I don't have a place for this. Well, what is this thing? And like you go down this, it's not even a rat hole. It's like a network of rat holes. And next thing you know, like you've cleaned out one box in your garage right? <laughs> <laughs> or your closet. Like yes. there's so much work in like organizing a complex system that it's uh, like yeah. you've, you've cleaned out a box in your garage, but more importantly, you've identified 20 other boxes that you didn't even know were there exactly. to begin with. Yeah, you, you pull the stuff back and yeah. And, and, and you feel like you've made zero progress. Right, right. <laughs> so I, one of the things I was asking when we, we were, uh, I was giving input on the presentation ahead of time is like how you, in figuring out these three systems, like how did you measure which one was better? Like what was the way of differentiating the three approaches and, and like what were you shooting for that was like, ah, that's the one. Yeah, so I, I ended up tying that back into a slide uh, which is kind of how we, we summarized everything, which uh, the way we kind of ended the prezo was, this is what we have under management. So being able to show that with um, not very many more people, we were able to expand the amount of infrastructure under management ex exponentially, which right. was fantastic, and, and be able to support our users, which I believe you saw that slide because it was in there. Yeah, yeah. And then we created a new it's a slide. Bold assumption. Yeah, <laughs> a new slide upon your recommendation, which showed Hey, when we were doing environments manually, it really took us about 60 hours if we were going to just create a new environment, whether it's a new staging environment or a new right, production right. environment, like packaging up all those 15 different products, making sure they're configured properly, doing all of the um, ops manager button clicking, which is evil. Like one thing we hit on is like no more freaking GUIs. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Allow me to automate the things. And... At the end of all of these three iterations, we're down to, we can do it about 30 minutes now. Okay, yeah. It's 30 minutes of Concord. Like, the human time that is dedicated to doing these things, like the time that an operator is sitting at a computer. Oh, yeah, that's a good way of measuring it. Got right, right, shrunk right. much smaller. And how much is, like, the robot time? Does the robot time stay constant, or, like... It does, but it's really interesting because the robot is waiting on the human. Yeah, yeah. So like, while right, the robot right, right. time wait, stays constant, you improve not only the human time and that the humans like can operate faster, but you eliminate all this wait time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
where like the robot is waiting for the human to like click the next button yeah. in Ops Manager or like whatever you need to do. So this is like as as I've talked with people and and wallflowered myself and several stuff here. One of the interesting things that's come up that's reoccurring in all this kind of discussion is how do you how do you justify doing what we used to call non-functional requirements, right? Like like nowadays it's 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 well not nowadays but in on our side of the fence it makes sense like I should speed up the build. Why are we even discussing this, <laughs> right? right? But uh, you know when it. It seems like a lot of people struggle with justifying why they should spend a lot of time to speed the build up, right? To make the humans and the robots faster. And, and you know, one, one thing that I find is successful is, and I've, I've mentioned it to a few people, is like, well, whether it's like, you know, some Six Sigma thing or whatever, do some sort of value stream map of just time it takes to do stuff. And people tend to believe in that more that you're just like optimizing the bottlenecks, right? Which is a little bit of what you're going over. Yep. But I don't, I mean, is, other than like a value stream, or there, is there, I don't know, what, what do you use to justify like we got to build these environments faster? Uh, well, you know, like I hit on my CF Summit talk, like this is one of many things in which we did not really ask permission. We just said this is the right thing to do. We're <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that, that's, that's another option people have mentioned a lot is like, yeah, we uh, didn't tell anyone. <laughs> right. I think if you had to sell the story, there's a few key pieces, which is one, we needed to scale. We were having trouble keeping up with three environments. We couldn't even imagine keeping up with 10. Mm. Okay, okay. So knowing that we were spending, you know, 80% of people's time with three environments doing all of this heavy lifting, patching, just daily run the business yeah. and couldn't make the platform better. Right, right, right. Because of that, uh, we couldn't imagine how we would expand that to 10. Yeah. So the scalability piece was like, it was the only way that we were going to scale without having to triple the size of the organization. Yeah, I mean, so that, that's a more adva advanced as in chronologically down, down the scale of this problem is, you know, you're already set up in a, in a team, an organization that knows like optimizing stuff is a good idea. So, th so then the point is like, like how did you, did you just like, was that a gut check that you had? It's like, holy crap, if we go up to 10, this is not gonna work. Or, or was there like studying or learning that you did to kind of prove that out? Or was it just like, yeah, we gotta fix this? I think it was, yeah, I th it was total intuition. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it was really like conversation with the team. Like, how do you guys feel about, how do you guys and ladies feel about managing 10? <laughs> and they were right. like, uh, we might quit. Yeah, yeah. I guess <laughs> it's like, okay, we should make this better. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the old, uh, you know, walk a mile in your future self shoes yeah. sort of plan. It's like yeah. you, you imagine what it's going to be like and it forces you to uh, avoid that terribleness. I really feel like we overemphasize, like numbers are great for when you give talks. Yeah. But I feel, and in many corporations, they're driven by like having provable numbers. Yeah. And I feel like as enterprises, we do injustice to, I have an intuitive feeling that like, this is just the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, there's two things. One, I agree. And like, I over-rotate on numbers a lot because, you know, I'm trying to, because I think it's a bootstrapping barrier, right? Yeah. Like a lot, a lot of getting initially started, you almost have to go through this hazing of metrics. Like it's an unintentional hazing that your organization does, but it's almost like if you can go through the obstacle course of metrics, then we can talk. <laughs> and then once you get past that, right? Like, 
almost by definition, if you're establishing a culture that isn't metrics obsessed, you will have a culture that's not metrics obsessed, right? right. Like you kind of build that out. Um, but anyway, so the second thing, this reminds me of another comment I've, I, I heard today or sometime is that, um, and you, you highlighted is, is that at the staff level, you have to shift people over to wanting to be responsible for everything, right? And so you made me think of this because it's sort of like the intuitive way that you get the team to want to like automate stuff is they're like, well, I'm going to be responsible for this shit show, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so like, I should fix that. Whereas, whereas if you didn't have these people imbued with full responsibility, they might just be like, eh, I don't know, whatever. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I mean, for us, I think it's, a, it's definitely part of the overall cultural shift that we're selling as part of Compost, which is collaboration and empowerment. And I think it's the empowerment piece. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you are empowered to make your work interesting. So if you find that it's, like, not great, figure out a way to create interesting work that makes that not great work go away. Yeah. And yeah. that's fundamentally exactly what they did. Yeah. Uh, which is awesome to see that manifest itself and like live itself out. And it was also great to give a talk on, this is what we did and we know it works and it's real instead of like hypothetically, <laughs> right, right, you right, could right. do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and, and so as, as one more item before we go to the other stuff we've both seen, like so, did you get any interesting questions or anything afterwards or during, or did you just stupefy them? They were just like, I need some time to digest all of this. We got a lot of questions around how do you, how did you do your measurements? So one your metric, favorite talk, yeah, topic, apparently. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, we got one question that was how do you manage, how do you measure innovation capacity? Because that was yeah. my whole sell is like we've created capacity for platform engineers to evolve the offering. By yeah. reducing just the maintenance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the way we just measured it was we basically classified activities as either innovative or not innovative. And then we said, oh, like all the non-innovative activities were taking substantial portions of time early. And then as we built this right. process out, uh, that time shrunk very, like, substantially. And now they're able to do things like sit with customers, get feedback about the platform, um, and find new offerings and build new offerings into the platform. Okay. No, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People really like met see I'm telling you though, like metrics and measuring stuff, it's just like I think that's that's the basics of all transformation. It's like you gotta get through that and then you can do other stuff. Or or you take the route of just like, let's avoid it entirely by being, you know, isolated or magical or something. And, I think and you have to, you have to have it. And metrics are important. I think it's all about finding the balance, right? It's, yeah. if we spend more time figuring out the metrics than we would have spent writing the automation, then maybe we've done something incorrect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of another thing. Um, in the compliance world, like some pivotal people work on this uh, open control thing, mostly for government, like compliance. And uh, I don't know much about it or compliance in general, but I, it, it's, it's like a, it demonstrates the way that a, a developer, I, I was going to say engineer, but this, I think this, this kind of thinking is what distinguishes even an, an engineer from a developer. Like I probably have referenced this before, but you ever seen that picture of like, here's how a scientist would balance a spoon on, on, a, on a cup, and then here's how an engineer would do it. And the scientist one is like, you know, 
perfectly like balanced on top of the cup and the engineer one there's like some duct tape and they just put the spoon on it <laughs> right it's just, that's awesome and and like I, I think a developer mentality is like even a little more hacky than that like we we even celebrate this with like that's an elegant hack right like a hack is a compliment so anyways like the open control thing is like this as far as i understand it's this this realization an epiphany by a developer mindset person where a lot of compliance that takes a long time is basically like someone has to go interview people and read a Word doc, I mean read a bunch of email and then they write a Word doc that says this thing is being used here, right? Like, or this, this component has this, satisfies this thing. It's not like there's some mathematical, mathematical formulas that prove that there's, you know, separation of concerns and stuff. And so the thought was like, oh, well, the developers know that, so why don't you just have them like write some YAML files that like say this thing that meets this compliance and then have some auto generation stuff that like spits out a word doc if you want and <laughs> right yeah. and and like it's 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 an elegant hack not because it's disingenuous and it's like circumventing the thing but it's re it's finding like this this inefficiency in the process and just like automating it away so i mean i think a lot of like metric stuff is similar to that it's like people need some metric and you just got to kind of like automate metrics and not really obsess over it to your point because if you obsess over metrics then you're back in the situation where like instead of delivering software to a user like now you're delivering a metric which yeah. is not valuable anyway yeah I, I mean communicating your successes and metrics being a huge part of that is some it's just a part of life it's something yeah, yeah, that yeah. we have to do yeah we have to convince others that what we delivered is of value yeah. Even though we know it's of value. Yeah, yeah. I think where I struggle is when we spend more time on the justification than the actual project, which is something that a lot of corporations deal with. Yeah. It's like because it all has to, every decision has to be boiled down to one simple number. And a lot of the uh, situations that we deal with in the enterprise are dramatically more complicated and sophisticated than that. Yeah. And to even begin to capture that complexity and metrics can be a very onerous task. Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, that reminds me of another anecdote that I, one of our, uh, I, I heard that one of, um, one of our, one of, not to be all commercial, one of Pivotal's um, uh, large retail customers, like their CEO, he has like the, he still has like the Christmas tree status meetings, right? Like what's red and yellow and green? Like how, how are things going? But then he started like also asking like, well, what did you learn this iteration? Like what, what are the, which is an interesting like qual, uh, qualitative thing to inject in there, right? Yeah. Like, like what, what's actually going on? And it's also narrow enough that like you can accomplish it in a little corporate meeting, right? Like you just want to be like, so how are things going? <laughs> which is like right. the, the conversation you'd really like to have. But you've got to like somehow efficientize it up to being just like, tell me something you learned. Right. Like what, what's a, a, a revelation that you had? Anyways, so, so like what are some of the other like, uh, what are some of the other like transformation stuff you've come across here? There, there's a couple of good keynotes that have come across. There are. Various, City uh, had an awesome keynote. I felt like they, that was what you said, the first time they've really come public and told their story, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of the slides in that talk were awesome. Yeah, like, I need to get a copy of them. Yeah, like everybody I talked to said, hey, we, we need some of those slides. Like there was a uh, lift and slift lift and shift side slide where it had I think Mr. Hankey from South Park. Yeah. And that's right. it was it, it showed multiple Mr. Hankeys from South Park in the cloud. Yeah, that that was the uh the, the story was if you have a uh, and for those who don't know, Mr. Hankey is a uh, a small piece of poo poo as, <laughs> as my kid would say. 
that uh, I think was uh, for a Christmas special, and so he's got hands and a delightful little face yes. and, a, and a Santa Claus hat, kind of inexplicably, if I remember. <laughs> and uh, he was saying that if you have um, if you have Mr. Hanky on premise, and you're just going to lift and shift it to the cloud, now you have 50 Mr. Hankies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is something that uh, I've been a big advocate of, which is the operational model for how you manage a monolith, which things like coordinated code releases, is not the same as how we want to manage future cloud services. Like, you can't handle that burden in a microservices world. Yeah. It's easy to coordinate releases when you have few number of things to release. When you have hundreds of things to release, that becomes almost impossible. So those operational practices can't come along with the transfer to the cloud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of you're doing it wrong all of a sudden. Right. <laughs> that happens. Right. Yeah, you know, that, that makes me think of another pattern that I've noticed here and over the past couple of months is... And, and I think the, the city person mentioned it a little bit, um, is sometimes the best way to clean things up is just to rewrite it, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm over-expressing it, but as another example of that, um, like I've heard several instances of, like, so when we're trying to do things a new way, uh, we run into these auditors, and the auditors are always a hat. They're telling us we can't do that, and we can't do this, or security or networking people. And sometimes what we find is that, like, one, it's always good to talk to them, but it turns out that what they're worried about just like doesn't happen anymore, right? Which is not exactly rewriting it, but it's just sort of like that concern doesn't really apply. So we don't need to, we don't need to worry about that Mr. Hanky. It just kind of drops off. And, and I think other, I've also come across some people where coding-wise, like they do an assessment of like, well, to modernize all this, to refactor it, and I'm putting this in air quotes, it's going to take us five years, right? To rewrite it, it's going to take us five years. So why don't we just rewrite it, <laughs> right? Like, and and there, and then well, it's almost it almost seems like there's some instances where it's less risk to do that rather than going in there and just like pulling out all the guts. I think you have to approach it iteratively, though, because one thing that many organizations fail to recognize is an organizational attention span is about six to eight months. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, yeah. if you like aren't going to show any meaningful results for three years, just like don't do the project. Yeah, I think that's another thing that the, the city keynote highlighted is, and, and I was just looking at a picture of this, um, but it, it, it's sort of like a way of decomposing, what am I trying to, the, the whole notion, the, the cliche phrase is decomposing the monolith. Right, but the kind of operational and project management thinking he was going over is because most of the decomposing stuff is like at a code level, right? Like how you yeah. pull it apart at a code level, and he he was giving a great, as far as I remember, overview of like how do you how do you strategize that out, right? And he was talking about breaking it up by business components and the business process that you have, and almost opportunistically finding those little business processes that you can actually convert to a microservice. And, and that seemed like a, a nicer overview than just like strangler pattern. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's uh, the business speak for what we, know, what we call a bounded context, exactly. right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, if someone could clarify bounded context for the rest of the world, that would be really helpful. That's, that's, uh, cause it's, it seems like a powerful developer tool, but it's, it's painfully confusing to explain to people. 
It is, and handing people the Eric Evans book, like, apparently isn't sufficient. Like, <laughs> yeah, here, yeah. just go read this over the weekend. Yeah, like, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know how that works out for you. Uh. <laughs> so, yeah, it, I think a lot of, you know, and carrying into kind of the next uh, use case that we saw, even Comcast talked about how they kind of established a framework for evaluating what goes into the new world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, I, I believe that was them. Uh, yeah, I mean, they have a, a phenomenal, like, rate of transformation, I guess. Like, they, I, I forget what all the, the public official numbers are, but they have, like, hundreds of projects and applications they've converted over to, like, a cloud-native thing. And, and uh, I, I was at a breakfast uh, with, with the guy... Uh, Otto, I mean, Greg. That's, that's Greg Otto, who, who, you know, does a lot of the speaking for it. And it was fun because there was someone who's a, an Xfinity customer there, and he's like, oh, I found this, like, labs thing. Like, you go down into the setting menus on your cable box, and there's a labs thing, and he's like, I know, like, that's stuff we've been shipping in there. So it's, it's like, it's always enjoy. I'm sure you get this, this thrill as well, but it's fun to, like, see, like, this actual thing that's being used over a lot of Comcast people, like, all this stuff we talk about, like, it's surfacing stuff in there. That's that's uh, interesting. Like it's shipping, <laughs> it's delivering real customer value, right? This yeah, is yeah. Where we talk about engaging work for the engineers and developers, and really people who are involved in any way in enterprise transformation is there's nothing like seeing what you built in product, like in production, in customers' hands. Yeah, and hopefully them liking it. I suppose them not liking it might not be so pleasant. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's always people who don't like something. I mean, you, you just got to, like, it, it, you could probably hope for maybe, like, 60% like rating. Yeah. And, and, then, and then just be happy if you get more than that. But, yes. I always feel like the UX designers bear, like, the brunt of oh, the yeah, yeah. negative feedback. I, I had a buddy of mine who worked at PayPal and when we did like the major redesign of the PayPal website, I, I believe he got like hate mail of like, who designed this? This is like, yeah. where did my little button go? Yeah, I, and that, I mean, that gets to another like, I don't know, maybe helpful shift is, is so, so uh, Nicole of, of DevOps report study fame was, was here and she's given a couple of talks and she has a good saying that like, um, what is it like individuals don't ship software teams ship software and and i and i think if you apply that mentality to your poor designer friend right like <laughs> like it's you know to a certain extent the designer is responsible but like looking at the bigger picture it's sort of like what's really responsible is the whole process and organization as we would say culture that you've set up that would like not only and i'm putting this in air quotes let this happen but they couldn't like fix it really quickly Right? right and like as another example like i think perhaps the uh the scourge of usability software is always printer software like i don't know about you but like network printing software is always like i don't know what happened <laughs> he figured this out yeah <laughs> and, totally and, and and like i know i like i imagine in my head it's not the individual programmers or maybe even their managers that are necessarily at fault, it's like they're probably doing the best with what they can. And so whatever the process set up around that, like they didn't like, that whole process doesn't value having awesome printer software. And you know, you just say it out loud and you're like. <laughs> yeah, but it's the context of the system. 
Yeah, yeah. That's something that Netflix really hits on. Like, when you look at failure, you shouldn't ask yourself, uh, it shouldn't be a blame culture. Like, you shouldn't ask yourself, why did this person screw up? It's like, how did we create a context in which this person was either incented to do the wrong thing or um, we, how could we have guarded ourselves from this or made it easier for them to do the right thing? Yeah, yeah. Like, like on, on one of my other podcasts, Software Defined Talk, we have this, uh, we don't have a fully fleshed out drinking game, but one of the items is like this book, The Halo Effect. And The Halo Effect is kind of a little bit of what we've been talking about here at a business level where it chronicles... Um, high-level executives, if not CEOs, who are like acclaimed for great work that they did. And then mysteriously, like five years later, their company's tanked, right? <laughs> and so it's kind of a study of this halo effect that like, you can't, it's good to study success, but you also have to study failure. Like you right. have to study both of those because it's usually like a systemic problem that's even out of the control of the CEO. And so if you really want to find those good processes that actually work and are sustainable, you can't just study success. Like you've got to study a long-term sort of thing there, and, and it's it's a uh, it's an exciting little book to read through. <laughs> it's it's not like there's another one that's really good called uh, In Search of Stupidity, that's more focused on the tech industry and and how uh, high-flying stuff like tanked out. Yeah, Matt Stein gave an awesome talk at UberConf a couple of years back that was um, I can't remember the title exactly of of the talk, but it. It was about, you know, failure is a certainty. Like, there is no choice but to fail. And right, talking right. about the handling of failure. And it was, it was a really great, it was, one of, it was his keynote uh, a couple years back. And it was really fantastic. Also kind of on that topic of needing to study failure. Yeah. And, you know, human error is really interesting. Like, traditional problem management is always like, 80% of our outages are caused by change. Okay, what do I do with that? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't stop making changes. I can't not change things. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, why is that a useful piece of information? It's not useful. Yeah. Like, let's stop having that conversation. Or, or you know, 90% of error is caused by uh, human error. Like, yeah. No, I, I think that's a good point that, like, um, it's a systematic ra there's I think there's a systematic rational explanation that you can walk someone to an epiphany right so a lot of the bias against metrics is just like well once you are enlightened it's obvious right like you, <laughs> you don't need you don't need the safety of metrics like just try it out and like figure it out and you'd be like oh well of course that makes sense and I think I, I one, of, one of the notions in the world of transformation there is this idea of blameless postmortems yep right and like one, it sounds nice, right? Like instead of having people yell at each other and stuff, like you're just like, I don't, I don't care who's, who did this. What we need to do is figure out how not to do it again, right? Like, like as a, a slightly less nice version of that is something my, one of my bosses used to like to say is like, I don't care if you screw up, just don't screw up twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't screw up the same way again. Um, but... I, I was thinking, like, when reading through that, like, accident study is you can't improve unless you have blameless postmortems, right? So in that sense, my, my whole layup to this is, like, it's kind of like an epiphanaic thing to say, like, you should have blameless postmortems. But you have to explain a pragmatic reason you would do that, which is, like, well, you want to continually improve, right? And, like, unless you have blameless postmortems, you're never going to improve because no one is going to explain what went wrong 
let alone help you think about how to fix it. And, and so it's a, a nice way of leveraging that in there. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the whole blameless postmortem trend is an acknowledgement that incentive systems are like a real thing. <laughs> right, right, right. And when you yell at people on bridges or like point out that it's their fault that they couldn't correctly follow like a 500 step process that was <laughs> being tracked in an Excel spreadsheet yeah. that, uh, you know, that maybe they won't want to sh be so transparent and share with yeah. you what could have been better. What, right? what is the answer to that damn spreadsheet project management thing? Like, like I work at Pivotal. Don't, don't tell anyone. But I work at Pivotal <laughs> and we do that every now and then. And I, and I just feel like, like why are, it's like 2016. Why are we still doing project management in a spreadsheet? I don't know, and why were there 300 steps to like release a piece of <laughs> exactly. software? And why are all 300 manual? Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I feel like whoever does this spreadsheet thing must have a really wide monitor, because you're always doing that like, like horizontal scrolling. Yeah. Like to get over to every, and it's just like, this doesn't work. Or special glasses, I don't special know. Special glasses. <laughs> yeah, they, like, they have like 3D immersion stuff where, where they, they put on the lawnmower man helmet and they can like turn their head. Yeah. And look through some like, you know, unicorn on a like a, a, a three-dimensional scape with a chrome ball situation. Yeah. They get the like double letter Excel columns by just like turning to the right. Like, oh, there's yeah. AA over there. That's like, right. Ah, great. Now I know what, when I'm supposed to execute yeah, this stuff. There's JJ. 57 like my favorite uh, and and it's it's crazy because when you know you and I are in, and there's some uh, satire here talking about like how silly it is but the, these are real conversations and, yeah. and people don't ask themselves like okay we had a paragraph of description as to what somebody was supposed to do in, in like JJ 57 some cell way over there yeah <laughs> why didn't they read it I don't know maybe because it was hard <laughs> it's like we made it as hard as possible for them to do their totally. job and fundamentally to me that's like the crux and we always have we always have this I, I don't want to say we but in general patterns tend to be yeah how do we stop the human from like making a mistake, like making the mistake instead yeah. of uh, like the assumption is that they're going to continue to do the same process. We just need to prevent them from doing it wrong yes. instead of like, how do we change the process so the human doesn't have to do that? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the difference between setting someone up for success and I don't even know what the opposite of that is. It's the classic of, well, if we just had another approval for somebody else to look at column J55, yeah, yeah, yeah. then clearly we would never see errors. Yeah, and of yeah. course, when you look at data, you see that the error rate is minimally impacted yeah, through yeah. additional approvals because the person approving is approving a hundred of them and they're like, oh yeah, I trust this person. Like, okay, approved. Yeah. Like, I didn't even look. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They just follow. And the even if they did again. look, they might not even know like whether that's correct or not. Yeah, if it was done well or like what the quality of it was. Right, so because it's all hierarchical based, not based on you have some knowledge of this particular process. Yeah. Like, so if you're this person's manager. You should know whether cell J, JJ. 220 is <laughs> <It's> the correct <laughs> it's the correct thing JJ 220 is, is my favorite <laughs>
just have a bookmark for that. <laughs> so is there anything else interesting you've seen? I, I, have, I have one last like topic to discuss, but anything else interesting you've seen here at the most awesomely named Spring One Platform Conference? Uh, the a lot. I will say the quality of the overall, you know, conference streams has been fantastic. So I've missed a couple of sessions that I'm gonna catch on YouTube. There was one about uh, domain-driven design and REST services. All right. That I think will be interesting. Uh, today I went to a session on TDD, the bad things. I, I would recommend uh, anybody who's interested in TDD checking that out. Uh, I can't remember the presenter's name, but he did a great job talking about some of the anti-patterns of things mm. people do when they're trying to TDD, but they're like doing it wrong. Yeah, uh, TD don't. Yeah, which probably was a little bit of a spoiler, but yeah, uh, yeah. you that, should still watch the session. It that, was that, that would be a fun premise for one of those little like uh, those little boutique developer conferences is the uh, doing it wrong. And like, yeah. there's no best practices discussed here. This conference is all about bad, like, bad practice like things you should not do yeah ever. it's the anti-pattern like yeah. conference yeah yeah that would be fun that would be fun there's like we could just call it the probably fine conference <laughs> there you go <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> this is probably fine yeah all right so the last topic i was going to ask about and and you made me think about this is so i was hearing someone talk earlier that uh like and i'm just picking one example like if you do pair programming uh, as an organization, then you, you have to go talk to the HR department because if you're doing rotating pairs, like individual performance reviews don't really make sense. Like they make sense for you as an individual and like, hey, you're really nice or hey, you're an asshole, right? <laughs> but as far as like the performance and the contribution that you have, like you have to rejigger how you evaluate people. And so that's just one example of it. And, and, and I'm curious, like, so in a, in a lot of this discussion that we're having, like to use Nicole's thing, right? Like developer, a developer doesn't ship code, a team ships code. And I, and I wonder like whether it's for yourself or like whatever, like how, how you're thinking about and encountering that you change people's like career management around and like how their bonuses get done and all this stuff. Because it's like, I like money, right? Yeah. And, and like I want, I, I, I would like to advance in their career so I can have like, you know, a pool I mean, I guess it's not all that it comes down to money, but you also get a lot of freedom to do things the way that you want and satisfaction and things like that with career advancement. And I haven't really heard a lot of discussion about how that fits into all of this. Well, it does come down to a pool in margaritas <laughs> by the pool, especially if you live in the Southwest. Uh, this is something we both know. These are life necessities, <laughs> yeah. right? Margaritas by the pool, life necessity. Um, <laughs> That is a fantastic question. I don't know why you always ask me the hard ones. I think... <laughs> That's because I, I'm fast enough that I ask before you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, we've noticed this pattern. I mean, we hit on the whole problem management thing, and, and which I think it was interesting. And certainly ITIL has taken a lot of heat in the last several years for kind of these things of sometimes you just have to apply reason and logic to things. Yeah. And the framework can't dictate, like, what you do. Yes, And I feel like we're coming to that place in human resources of mm. it's very hard for us to have an honest conversation about are people really getting value out of performance reviews? Because yeah, I believe yeah. that in general the answer is no. And probably I'll, I'll hear from my human resources people about making this comment. But 
I thought one thing the Netflix Culture Deck did that was very brave was people don't really get value out of a lot of the traditional HR-related things that we do that we pretend are valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things like work rotations. A lot of times internship programs are like basically nice ways to say slave labor. Um, yeah. You know, and then we wonder like why we can't recruit the best and brightest. And it's like, well, they had six months of experience working at our company and we made them fill out like the Excel spreadsheet that we just talked about. Yeah, yeah, JJ220. Yeah, JJ220. <laughs> like they are the JJ220 expert. Um, so I think that there's a, you know, we have to have, come to a place of organizational honesty about most companies that do performance reviews, it's a once a year conversation and the only people, the only thing that anyone cares about, which is what you just hit on, like how much of my bonus do I get? Yeah. Yeah. And what, what can I do over the next year? to maximize it, right? I mean, you know, it'll yeah. change in a round, but like, give me some hints. Right. <laughs> and certainly, we have people that stand out as star performers, and, and we want to encourage and find a way to incentivize that. And being empathetic to HR, like, a lot of their position is, how do we do this in the fairest way possible? Totally. And how do we not get sued? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the other side. Um, and I think a lot of us who have been in management for a little while kind of are in a place where we just concede that it won't be fair. Yeah. And people follow leaders. And like the way the fairness plays out is if you're a good leader and you sent people for the right behaviors, people follow you. Sure. And if you're a bad leader and like you don't incent people for good behavior or like you incent bad behavior, then people don't follow you. Or the people that do follow you, like, don't help you actually accomplish anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as we have discovered over the past, let's say, five years. I mean, it's actually been going on for, like, ten years or something. But we've started to take seriously in the last five years, we being the IT department, that we do not know the best way to do things. Right? Like, we might, at some point, the way that we do things might have been the best way. Or maybe it wasn't. It's almost like this is a blameless post-mortem in action. It doesn't matter, right? But at the moment, like, we have finally learned that, like, the best, the, the way to, like, do things best is to always question, like, is this the best way to do it, right? Like, should we be doing this? Let's analyze it. Let's figure out if this is the right way to do things. And I think, I think my experience uh, with a lot of, like, HR people, finance people, or, and whatever is going back to the printer software problem is they are kind of not allowed to think like that. Like, it's not really part of that system to continually be evaluating and questioning. And they, they get consumed by the bad actor problem, right? Like, I mean, they, a lot of what, like, these support... I'm putting that in quotes because no one likes to be called support. But a lot of what these enabler departments, like finance, HR, the lawyers, like, they're really there to make sure that, like, the bed does not get shit on. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so... Somehow, in the same way that in IT, it's really hard for us to figure this out. Like, they have to wangle out, like, oh, we're going to have to change stuff around and still have it be cool. And, like, it is really, like, like, you hit upon, like, the problem with this is, like, because 
I never know if like I'm a cynic or an optimist, right? Like I always feel like I'm like a uh, a happy nihilist. You're, you're in IT, so you're probably somewhat cynical. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I, I I like to think that I'm a classic cynic from from the ancient Greek days, which is to say, I don't believe that you can ever fully know something. Sure. Right. So you're always exploring, right? Like you're never satisfied. Anyways, the point being, I'm going on and on about this. Um, that man, I've kind of lost my train of thought. Once I go back to ancient Greece, I'm, I'm done. Oh, okay. Well, but, uh, let me pick up from where you're at. Sure, then. sure. Uh, you know what I think is interesting is this whole agile thing has permeated everything that we do. Yes. So, like, as we apply that culture to software, we're always asking ourselves, you know, and we talk about this, like meetings and stand-ups and code reviews. Are we getting value out of this? Are we getting reasonable value for the amount of effort that we're putting in? Are we seeing the fruits of our labor? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it just so happens that that works really well when it's an IT person to IT person conversation. And it's not very well perceived when the person who we're interacting with around that process is not from our world. Totally, yeah, yeah, it goes, it goes back to your fate measuring. Like, it's <laughs> not an HR thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we happen to deal a lot with HR because what we do is all about people. Yeah, no, yeah, and, and that reminds me of the point I was rambling towards, which is, and you raised this excellently, is, uh, and this is why I was saying I don't know if I'm a cynic or a positive person, is like, I mean, people are unfair. Like, in large organizations, unfairness happens. And that's why we have, like, a lot of talk about diversity and, like, not having, like, you and I are just a bunch of two white dudes, like, doing everything, right? Who, you know, have pools and margaritas. I don't have, pool, <laughs> I don't have pools yet, but I got margaritas, so I'm getting there. But, but, but that, that's an issue that I think is, like, you have to figure out is it's too easy and dangerous to just say, like, well, I know who the good people are, so I'm going to reward them. Right. <laughs> like, that's just, that is, I think, through what you might call the data set of human history. It's the, that has been proven not to work. That's not a sustainable It's the <laughs> pendulum plan. swinging problem. It's like, that's yeah, where yeah. you want to go. And, and, so, and then there you have the HR side, which is completely on the yeah. other end of the spectrum. And you've got to find a way to, to kind of ride the middle. Yeah, and to your point of it being a hard problem, I don't think there's an answer yet. Like, I don't think there is an answer that's scalable, right? Where how do you... How do you deal with, I mean, there's, to boil it down to two things, how do you deal with in a fair, respectable, proper, right way, like all those things? One, doing career management for people, right? Which is intimately tied to evaluating people. I mean, that's what it gets down to is like, how do you evaluate the worth of a person to the organization? Because like, you have to do that. Right, like, like you can intuitively do it, which we just established is not, that's not gonna fly. Yeah. <laughs> so you need some better systematic way of doing that. And I don't know, like you could do peer reviews, but we gotta come up with something that, well, I think, like, that works out. I mean, we don't have to come up with it now. Yeah. But we as an we industry- We could do a whole it. podcast about this. Yeah, I, I mean, I actually have uh, one of the Pivotal Conversations podcasts I did a while back was with our head of HR. Yeah. And I ask him several of these questions. And so we kind of talk about I should have him on again because I think he won, won an award or something. But like he, as you can imagine, for some for a company that preaches a lot of this stuff, like we got these problems. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and so he is the head of HR and so he's had to figure out a lot of this stuff. And so it is, yeah, it's hard. It is. It is hard. I, I, I don't know that there's an answer. I think a lot of people are thinking about it. I think... Um, Again, like, 
we have to have empathy. So we talk a lot about empathy, but we don't always have empathy for people who are outside of IT. Yeah, 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 definitely. And sometimes we have to realize as empathetic people, like, while we say this, this particular activity isn't adding value, so we'll just stop doing it, that doesn't always fly for, like, everyone else. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, dear lawyers, like, these contract negotiations don't seem like they're adding a ton of value. Yeah, so, yeah. Like, let's just not do that. We'll just shake hands. Right, we right, promise right. it'll be good. Or, or, like, procurement people, too, right? right. Like, like, it's not, like, that's a very valuable function if, if done correctly. All right. Well, that's a good place to wrap up. I think we, so. We got to go get, uh, get some, some drinks and I think go, so. go hang out with people. Maybe someone else knows the answer to these questions. We'll I see. think Bridget might know. Yeah. Well, as always, thanks for listening. This has been the Lords of Computing podcast. You can go to lordsofcomputing.com to find it. Now, speaking of Bridget, solely because of her, I went out, well, and also because it's a good idea, I went out and registered ladies of computing. All right? and Just so that, you know, we can, I think it's ladies. I should go check. Or maybe it's uh, more like queens. Anyways, I think it's ladies of computing. So you can go to either one. I, I might need to go uh, register people of computing or something like that, humans of computing. I but, have debating, we'll been debating for myself whether uh, ladies can be lords, and I think I've decided they can be. Is lord a general, gender-neutral uh, title? I mean, I, I not, not normal. Like I, I mean, I feel like it might be like mayor. <laughs> like, but then again, like there's, there's people will say like madam something for like high office. I don't know, we should look this up. I think we should figure this we out. We'll take this as an action item. Yeah, well, or maybe we could just call it the uh, monarchy of computing. Like that, that, made that, that would imply everything. Yeah. But anyhow, we'll see everyone next time. <laughs>